I'm Quinn Murphy, and this is In My Chair. Kristen Bell is an American actress, singer, philanthropist, producer, and mom. She was born and raised in Huntington Woods, Michigan, a.k.a. Detroit Metro. After graduation, Bell moved to New York City to attend the prestigious Tisch School for the Arts, where she studied musical theater. In 2004, she won the title role in Veronica Mars, which, over the course of four seasons, was nominated for multiple awards. In 2013, Bell was the voice of Princess Anna in the Disney movie Frozen. Bell's film credits include Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Get Him to the Greek, Bad Moms, and many more. She received a Golden Globe nomination for the lead role in the critically acclaimed NBC sitcom The Good Place. Belle lives today in Los Angeles with her husband, Dax Shepard, and her two children. Kristen, welcome to In My Chair. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Me too. Um, Gosh, I normally would have seen you by now, I'm sure, but you know. Oh, a hundred times, but we've been kept apart for a full year. Is your life as an actor, because you guys go through like short and longer periods of kind of working and then not, I imagine that has this felt really different for you? Yeah, for sure. Well, in, in many funny ways, because I've been long since begging people to do interviews via zoom and everyone's like, no, you have to come into the studio. Cause you know, the, the stuff we work on together is like where you're appearing somewhere and it's publicity and you have to go in super early and do, uh, you know, a morning show. And I've been like, can't we just zoom in? And now the whole world is okay zooming in. So I feel pretty good about maybe not having to travel as much in the future and being able to keep zoom a little bit a part of my, uh, career when I do publicity, but definitely the, um, the inability to work and seeing the suffering of my, the people around me in, in everywhere in the world, but also in my industry has really been hard because I'm, I, you know, we have uh, vulnerable members in our family, so I can't be risky at all, nor would I be because I would only follow the science, but it's not lost on me that if I agree to take a job and that green lights, some indie movie, a hundred people can come back to work. So I chose to go back to work in the fall out of responsibility. I mean, yes, it was a script I loved and I wanted to do it, but also because I was like, if you say yes to this, Kristen, a hundred people will have a paycheck and that responsibility is not lost on me. So we just did it as safely as humanly possible. And as far as I know, we were the only production in Los Angeles in 2020 not to shut down for a COVID case because the, the stagnancy of the economy when nobody's buying anything is nerve wracking for a lot of people. Like what I was talking about with the responsibility of going back to work, like people who are attempting to do small things in a really safe way. I'm also like, I believe in the science that it's like, okay, if I'm masked or who knows with the variants now, some people are saying double masked, whatever it may be currently, if you're doing that, then, you know, I'm not going out to restaurants because it makes me nervous, but I don't, if you're really going double masked or you're, you know, going to a store to pick things up, I don't necessarily, you're going on a road trip and giving random pockets in the Midwest some business. I don't know. It's just, there's, there's context and nuance involved in all of it because we can't just all bunker down and hope that everybody's savings account lasts them. Cause that's not right. the case, right? Especially with people who are already kind of, um, 
below in, in the wealth gap, like already suffering and oh, don't 100%. have the option. When you look at the maps of areas that are affected uh, greater, you can tell that it's people who ha- who don't have the luxury of working at home. They work in public places or, you know, take the subway to work. They're not, you know. 100%. Like you got to be there. And then childcare is a whole nother issue. So I'm like, look, okay. You know, right early on in the beginning on my husband's podcast, Armchair Expert, he had Sanjay Gupta on. And Sanjay was like, you can totally order food, right? Because yeah. 160 degrees will kill it. Like, it's it's great and safe to order food. So we just made a sort of agreement in our family that, like, every time we're ordering food, the Postmates getting a $100 tip. Or oh the Grubhub's getting a $100 tip. Like, no matter what. You know what I mean? You're ordering, you know, smoothies or, or French fries and burgers or whatever it is. It's like that person is an essential worker and is literally risking far more than we are. We have the bank account to do it. This is where we spend our privilege, you know? And like also early on, I talked with my girls a lot about essential workers and what they do and how they're all different types and our Amazon delivery guy and our FedEx guy and all these people are essential workers. And we had this like palette that was, I don't know what came on it, a planter or something. We taped, we, we stapled a sheet to it and then we, um, painted thank you essential workers on it and put it out on the front lawn. And like, I'm not saying that made a difference for anyone who was driving by, but it made a difference in my parenting to know that my girls were putting effort into recognizing someone else's efforts. And then, you know, one of the things I was going to talk to you about, but this kind of brings it up is how do you teach empathy? How do you exercise or expand your empathy if you don't, if you weren't shown that? I mean... That's difficult because if you weren't shown it, it's going to be a whole hell of a lot harder because you're going to be starting at a deficit, right? But like the only thing I'll say with my kids where they're a blank slate, I start with some basic math. I go, are you the only one living in this house? And then it's a very clear answer, yes or no, because you got to go with clear answers, right? Are you the only one living in this house? The answer is no. I go, okay, who else is living here? Me, daddy you and my sister. Okay. And is any, I always have been saying to them since they were born, no one human being is more important than any other. So then I'll say, is, are, is any one of us more important than the other? And they'll say no. And I'll go, okay. So that means that you don't get to choose what's for dinner. You have to consult us or you don't get to snatch that toy out of your sister's hand. You have to think about the repercussions of how she'll feel. Um, They also, in their school, they go to this amazing uh, charter school that is uh, allowed to, because it's a charter, have all these social-emotional development classes. And they have three times a week what's called SEL, which is social-emotional learning. And they either make the kids play or have the kids play a team-building game where there's no one winner and everyone has to work together, just as an exercise to figure out cooperation. And this is at six and seven years old. Or they ask anyone if they want to talk about a problem. And this isn't like a small group of five. So they'll say like, does anyone have to talk about a problem? And someone will say, yeah, you know, my brother snatched my toy. And they'll they'll say, okay, wow, what, what toy was it? And they'll ask for some specific. And then they'll say, what do you think made your brother do that? And then uh, he'll say, I don't know. And they'll go, okay, what were you doing at that moment? Oh, I was playing with you know, all of the Legos. Okay. Did your brother have any Legos? No. And you just sort of mathematically reduce the situation till you're isolating the other person's feelings. 
Because mm. I think when you try to think of it as a whole, you can't uh, leave yourself out of it. But when you can mathematically deduct all these details until you can just get to the other person's feelings, that I think is how at least I'm starting empathy with my kids. I also have a lot of really blunt reminders to them where I'm like, how many toys do you think you have? 400? And I'm like, do you know there are some kids in this country that don't have any, that have zero? I'm like, why don't we go through today to feel really good about ourselves, to feel like really responsible and because we have a responsibility to be kind, let's just pick five of them to give to another kid. You know, like I make it easy and yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's one recipe because I certainly have one daughter that's way more sensitive to it than the other. Um, But I think continually talking about it and reiterating everyone's value has to be where it starts. I feel like you should go to Congress or Congress should go to your kid's school. And like, we could just all put it out on the table and be like, listen, this is how we feel. This is how you feel. You know? I mean, I thought, I believe me, I have, yeah, I, <laughs> I thought so many times how the education my kids are getting right now because of how like well-rounded it is and how topical it is and how communicative it is. I'm like, I wish I could just send every person who's having some sort of stunted growth element in their adult life to this school for like two weeks, it would be so right. helpful. Everyone goes to Hoffman school. You right. Know. Exactly. <laughs> so you grew up in a, we're about the same age and you grew up in a time when that language and approach wasn't common. I'm not going right. to say it wasn't around, but it wasn't common. Did you, how, how was that for you growing up then? Did you, um, how did you cope th- without those kind of tools? Well, I don't know that um, the the somehow the instincts I was born with were so empathic to the point of just deconstruct like uh, to the point of destruction to mm-hmm. my own psyche. Like I have a real, I, I'm much more comfortable with it now. But as a kid, I had such a problem with not death, but being responsible for negatively impacting someone. And I'm sure that came out of massive codependence and, you know, maybe my parents being divorced and wanting everyone to like me. But I remember like when I was little, like loving my animals more than humans, because I've always valued nonverbal communication over verbal because it's harder for me to find words, but it's really easy for me to feel a feeling and it to be so crystal clear but then to find the words to talk about it, it like takes me a couple days of percolating on it. So I loved being with my animals, but I also remember having this profound respect for nature. And once I accidentally stepped on a slug, and I mean, I was like an embarrassing age. I think I was like 15 or something. Yeah. I accidentally stepped on a slug. And up until that point, I had like never killed a bug. I'd always let it out that side the house because I have such an issue distinguishing my emotions from someone else's emotions. Like if you're crying, I'm crying, whether I know the reason or not. My mirror neurons are always on fire. Okay, wait a minute. Did you come out that way or was this a learned behavior? I, I think I came out that way. I, I don't I don't know. It's like I have a, a weird sixth sense about it. Like for instance, I've never passed a squirrel where I haven't gone, huh, I wonder if he's got a girlfriend. Like I, I anthropomorphize (laughs) everything. I can't like, I, yeah, I just, are you getting a reward from it though? Yeah. Internally, it makes me feel like life is so vibrant 
That's what it is. It makes me feel like life is not dead or stagnant or accidental. It's vibrant and it's filled with um, uh, an endless supply of warm fuzzies if you choose to have it. Remember that book, Warm Fuzzies? It was. It's like a kid's book mm-hmm. where everyone in the town is passing out warm fuzzies and these little, like, I don't know, soft balls. They pass out to everyone until this nasty witch comes in town and she starts selling cold pricklies. And everyone says, my warm fuzzies are gone. And then they realize, oh, no, wait, it's my choice to pass out warm fuzzies or cold pricklies. Neither of them are, like, they're both endless. I missed that one. It's a pretty good book. But so anyways, the slug. So I accidentally step on a slug. I was mortified. It was the first death I was responsible for. I buried it in a matchbox in my backyard and like had a funeral service because I I don't know why it just felt like it was right. And I also know it was stupid. I also know I didn't tell my friends because I knew that they would be like, why? Because there are some people, most people, who I don't think can understand or, yeah, they can't understand the, I guess, world I create in my head for everything. Mm. I was going to say the depth of my feelings, but then I realized I would, that would sound like I was factual and they were not. And I really try to live without judgment if I can, but whatever world is in my head, it's harder to understand. Like it even goes into my relationship with my husband where he'll, I have a like a big aura, I think, so I can pick up on other people's energy immediately, but I also have a ripple effect in a room that if I'm in a great mood, it has the ability to like sparkle and infuse people. And if I'm sad, the minute I walk into a room, my family's like, oh no, what? And I always want to go, nothing, just let me be sad, leave me alone. And they're like, we can't, you're making us feel it. Your, your actions or your face or something, I don't know. Do you allow yourself that privilege to, to walk in a room and not have to be responsible for other people's happiness? Yes, I definitely do. I definitely do. And I've gotten, as I've gotten older, I've been able to say, I'm just in a bad mood. I'm sad. And I'm, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll take it out of here if it's too strong. If like the vibe is too strong. Cause again, I'm silent when it's happening. So that's how I say it's like a sixth sense. Cause I don't really understand it either. Yeah. Cause in my head I'm going, y'all mind your business. Just fucking right. leave me alone. Like you don't need to be concerned. I'm just telling you I'm in a grumpy mood. Like le- go eat your cereal, do your computer work. Don't concern yourself with me. But their focus keeps turning back and I have to acknowledge like maybe I'm pulling them. I don't know. When like, you walk into a room and yeah. you put a judgment, you're saying, I mean, I'm sorry that I was going to ask, is there a judgment on it? Or are you just going, the room feels happy or sad? Cause I walk into a room and I'm like, this person I like, this person I don't, this person's dark, this person's great. And there's a super, and I'm wrong. Sometimes I'm really wrong, but there's mm-hmm. a judgment attached to it. Not usually. Um, I'm sure there is, because I'm no saint, okay? But not usually. It's more a temperature check on people. Um, and I don't I, I do tend to think that like hurt people hurt people. So even if someone's nasty, I'll sort of make it my mission to infiltrate them and see how to get them to smile. But yeah, I certainly don't I, I don't feel the responsibility to make everyone happy anymore. And I like even in my marriage, my husband will say like, you feel weird, like your vibe, you're are you mad at me? And I'll go, I think so. I, I can't I can feel the feeling I'm feeling very clearly. And I know the event that it 
that it's in relation to, but I don't know how to describe it yet. Like I, the, the feel, it's a very You're strange. You're waiting for permission to, to feel your feelings in that moment. Yeah. But it's also like, I actually can't find the words to describe what I'm feeling. It's almost like, I don't know. It's hard for me to talk about this because I've never explained this to anyone but my husband before, but like, it's almost like I, I have two languages. One is English where I can speak to you. And another is just feels and the feels are always really, really clear, but I can't always put them into words right away. I really have to like just percolate on them and think about them. And sometimes I'll, sometimes I'll be like, Oh, it's nothing. And other times I'll be like, I know exactly what it was. It was when you said this, I felt this, but yeah, it's really strange. I don't know. It's no, I, I think a lot of people have that and don't acknowledge it. Right. So they're just moody, you know, when really like a lot of times, like even in my relationship, like if one of us is feeling, I'm also kind of really sensitive and I definitely could give Jean-Pierre like a lot of reasons to be, you know, upset or mad or whatever, but I'll do that thing where I'm like, what's wrong? What, you know, and he's like, half the time, I'm just tired. You know, I didn't sleep well, but a lot of, if there is something underneath there and then you kind of explore it and talk about it, once you kind of bring it to light, it does, it won't, at least it won't stay where it was in the beginning, you know? Yeah. But I like need three or four days to even understand what words go with the feeling. Mm. So what is, what, so if you're this I want to say, and this is me thinking about you from knowing you, I think you're this kind of altruistic, magnanimous person. Do you attract the, what is the opposite of that? Uh, how does that fit into your life? Do you, are people who are takers, are you like drawn to them or is it someone you stay clear of or? Um, I guess I'll definitely stay. No, it depends. I can usually, like you, feel someone's kind of vibe and intention. Like, the people aren't nearly as clandestine as they think they are. Like, <laughs> I have a couple friends who are, like, still single. They're in their 30s or 40s, and they're, you know, they, they don't cook a ton, and they're super fun. And so, like, those people, I wouldn't quantify that. I wouldn't qualify them as a taker just because they come over for dinner four nights a week because I make food. Like to me, that's you, you, I can see how someone would look at that as a taker, but to me, my love language is nurturing. So I'm making food already. So I'm like, oh my God, absolutely come over. Like if you've would got you a go need, to someone's house four times a week to eat their food. Well, no, but that's because I like to cook and I like to nurture. Right. But, but what if that person liked to cook and nurture? Oh, then yes, I would. Okay. Then yeah, then for sure. Um, so I will definitely like ping pong love languages off people, but I don't necessarily feel that I'm friends with any takers that I feel aren't giving in another area that maybe isn't being acknowledged uh, first or, you know, like if I have friends that let's say come over for free food a lot, which I do, <laughs> um, they give to me in way, in other ways that are, mm-hmm. that are just as important, even though the physical way that if you were to come over, you could, you could say, Kristen, uh, this person comes over or these people come over all the time. And don't you feel like they're just mooching off you? I, I would be able to say, actually, there's a lot hidden in this relationship that I'm gaining from as well. You know? Yeah. So, but you've said a couple times already that I used to be that way. I used to. So something, or I'm getting better. So what wasn't serving you 
that you ch- what was it oh. about that that wasn't serving you that you had to change that type of behavior? I guess it's not so much the nurturing when I want to nurture, it's the over committing to everyone else's needs before my own. That's one thing I learned in my mid 30s. Like for instance, this is very strange, but I'm at my absolute safest, most warmest place in my soul when my pod or my whole family is over boisterous in the kitchen, feeding, playing, and then I can silently slip away into the bedroom and just read a book. Like I love people, but I don't always like person. So mm-hmm. it's like I I desperately want my tribe to be together. So oftentimes prior to my 30s, I would si- I would suffer through, not suffer through, but I would continue at the party even when I was drained. And I say party as in like five, six people. Maybe we're playing cards. Maybe they were watching a movie with the kids. Times when I want to nurture my um, introvert. And I know that it will appear strange if I invite everyone over and then for 30 minutes, two hours into the night, sneak into my bedroom just to like read a book. That looks weird. That looks super weird. looks like it's what a serial killer would do or something. (laughs) But like, it's what nurtures me. I just need to know that my whole tribe is being taken care of. And then I also need to go inside my head a little bit. And I love when those two things can happen one after the other or simultaneously But it's not always, you know, it it is weird. So only in my 30s have I said like, hey, honey, I'd love to have, you know, so-and-so over for dinner. And then if I need to go into the bedroom, if because I feel like it's, I don't know, getting loud or boisterous or I just need a couple minutes alone, will you cover me? And he'll go, yeah. And so it's like me acknowledging that's something that feeds my soul and being able to lean on, being able to be honest and lean on my friends and family for that comfort. Yeah, like claiming what you need to be a happy person. Yeah, not being, not standing up and being weird and being like, okay, so I just need like a minute. Um, like just sort of saying, does everyone have what they need? Okay, cool. And there's another um, fruit plate in the fridge. And then just walking into my bedroom. I don't need to make a ton of excuses. It's an Irish exit without, you know, yes. the blackout. And I'm, and I'm back. It's not like I'm, I mean, this is such a weird issue to talk about because it's like so specific, but it's not like I'm gone the whole night. I just, I need breaks. Yeah. I hear that. I mean, it's kind of the best of both worlds. If you think about it, like you've got everyone there, you can go away and then you can come back. That it feels very indulgent to me. It's my favorite (laughs) place. I wanted to ask you, you've said a couple times and I know this from, you know, talking with speaking with you. um, You talked a lot about science. If the science says or whatever, and I know that, you're really into critical thinking. Yeah. Was that something, how did you learn about that? And also how did that kind of readjust the way you think about things? Well, I didn't think about it at all before I met my husband. I grew up in a very, a community that was just lovely and wonderful, but it was very religious and um, everything was black and white. There was good and bad. And there was, you know, people that did drugs were bad. People that didn't do drugs were good. Like there was just, there was never nuance or context, which is why I think those two things are so important. And how you apply those things is sort of critical thinking. And and you used ha- to think like that. You very much. I, I, I didn't know any other way. So when I met my husband, it was really difficult for me to understand that he had been an addict because I was like, well, wait, but, but I love you and you're good. And, but 
but bad people do drugs. Like that was literally the elementary school thought I was having. Mm. And it, it was crazy, but he basically was like, yeah, but there's a lot more to it. And just showed me sort of opened the, the, you know, curtains on this gigantic gray world that we live in where everyone's kind of trying and everyone was dealt a different hand in the deck. And once I started looking at it that way, just critical thinking is, is something I don't know that I nurtured in my own instinctual thought for a long time. But after I met my husband, he's like a very purposeful critical thinker to the point of almost being like a pessimist. Like he'll continue to bring up the antithesis of the point in a way where I'm like, no, we've gotten to the end of the discussion. Stop bringing up alternate points of view just to crumble it. We've decided. He is the devil's advocate. He is the devil's best advocate. Yeah. Um, but I do, but I think it's helpful and it's gotten me to be a lot more truthful. You know, it's gotten me to not play all these weird games with my kids where I, you know, I want to nurture instincts and gut reactions and critical thinking. And I've, you know, my daughter really young asked me if Santa Claus was real and I had a choice. I was like, okay, I want the magic of this holiday so bad. And I know she does too. But I also kind of in my soul felt like we're in a time where Me Too was happening and I want, if my daughter ever smells something fishy, uh-huh. I want her to ask a question and I want her to get the truth. So I popped the bubble to use that as an example. And I said, you're right. One day a year, we don't let some weird guy in a jumpsuit break into the house. You're absolutely right. It sounds crazy because it is crazy. Like mommy and daddy put the, the uh, presents out. Now, that doesn't mean we can't still celebrate it and talk about Santa. And by the way, we've lost none of the magic. We still talk about Santa like he's real. They absolutely know we get them the presents. None of it matters. It's still super fun. But I said to her, I'm really glad that you asked me because I'll never lie to you. I'll always be very honest with you. And when you have that feeling in your tummy, like something doesn't sit right with this, that people are what people are telling me. I always want you to ask more questions. I was looking at your book the, about the purple, the world needs more purple people. Is that the right uh-huh. the title? And I yeah. thought, oh, this is a book about critical thinking. It was like ask more questions, like be thought. Oh yeah, yeah. Sort of. I mean, basically, with that book, we like so we you know children's books come out two years in advance, uh, or we write them two years in advance. It takes a long time for them to come out. So. End of 2016, we were just seeing this incredible divisiveness among human beings in America. There was just so much fighting. And it seemed like uh, even at our dinner table, which, you know, we all tend to have the same political beliefs, there was just still so much argumentativeness. Like we had been, like our habits were to be argumentative now. And I worried my, you know, partner Ben and I, we worried that just like we both had young kids that when they turn the, we turn the television on and they see two colors, they see red or blue. They don't see red and blue. They see red or blue. And it was just getting very far away from any sort of like discussion about what could make our country better. And it was devolving. And we were like, what if we wrote a book that had some language and a little bit of a roadmap that allowed kids to turn towards their fellow human beings, even if they may disagree with them, but allowed like this five great features that of character that no one can argue with, like working hard, asking great questions, laughing a lot. You can't find anyone in America that's like, it's terrible to laugh. Don't do it. You know? Too many people are laughing. 
I mean, yeah, like you can't, you can't find it. And then, um, you know, using your voice, whether it's for yourself or for someone else and injustice you see. And then the final step, which is being uniquely you, because we say in the book, because you're the only you we've got. So we just wanted to kind of create this magic color that was like, especially in, you know, households where maybe your mom is red and your dad is blue and they disagree. You could be purple. And you everyone know, likes and, Prince. And, and everybody loves Prince. And that's what I, yeah, that's this, that's going to be the second book. Everybody loves Prince. Um, so wait, I, I have another question though, because I think I'm like the Dax of your household, you know? Mm-hmm. like. So you grew up with this faith and then you're learning critical thinking. Can they coexist? I mean, yeah, if your faith is um, nimble. And your faith is feeling based and not organized structure based. I think that's the the practical answer because like I still have, I don't know. I look up to the sky and I don't know what the, I don't know what it is. I mean, I, I doubt it's the dude sitting up there with a long white beard. Like I was taught when I was little, but I don't know. And that's what I tell my kids, by the way, I reinforce, I don't knows all the time with my kids. Like, I'm like, I don't know what happens when you die. I think I know because I know that when we buried grandpa, he went into the ground and he's not existing here anymore. And that's all I know. So I don't know the answers to these things. And I think that reinforces my kids, I hope, not being know-it-alls, you know? I think we have a a major shortage of kids who are comfortable saying, I don't know. And Mm -hmm. that is the beginning of the loss of critical thinking because critical thinking begins with an I don't know. But right? isn't it a heavy burden to be a critical thinker? Like, I don't know what it's going to happen to me after I die. Yeah, it is. But that's where you're just, uh, that's where peacefulness comes in. You know, I'm not even calling it, I wouldn't even call it faith, just peacefulness. Like, I don't need to know. I don't have to be greedy with all the pieces of information. My place is here. My place is to wake up in the morning in my incredibly comfortable household, love my kids, like, do as much good work as I can. And everybody comes to an end. I think that's a, that's a little bit of a, that's greed to me to think Mm. that we shouldn't come to an end. No, everybody does. And that's okay. You know, there's also like a ton of stuff in their preschool that they taught them about this. I mean, I, I hate reducing it down to these kid lessons, but I, I, I think adults could stand to I learn think people a lot. Could learn, by, yeah, totally. Yeah. Going back. So like there was this woman who runs a preschool in Hancock Park, an area in Los Angeles. And she talks about, um, how to teach the cycle of life and get kids. Like we have so many kids that are sort of afraid of death. And, you know, the reality is there's been a lot of books written. It's because we don't see it anymore. I mean, you know, 200 years ago, we all lived in the same, you know, studio apartment and you saw when grandma died and she was in the corner for four days before they picked her up. So it wasn't as scary. You saw it, but when things are taken away from us in our lives, it becomes a little bit, um, I don't know, sought after, like scary, you know, it was like the, how they can sort of like in Victorian times, things started getting sexualized because we started covering up our necks and our ankles. Like once you start taking stuff away, things can get weird. But the way that she like exposes kids to it is she'll get larvae and she'll have them raise them into caterpillars, release them as butterflies and say, let's watch them in the yard for a few days and they're going to lay new eggs and then they're going to die, but let's see where their eggs are laid. So she focuses it on the rebirth of the next generation. And she says, cause those butterflies will die 
And then they'll lay new caterpillars and then we get to watch them grow up and that's the cycle of life. And it's just a really, it's a great reductive way to also look at human beings. And yeah. But does that mean that, that honestly, and you're, when you're laying on your bed at four in the morning and you can't sleep, you're not afraid to die? I mean, of course I am, but I'm afraid. I'm not, I don't say if I wouldn't say afraid. I'd say like, I think it's a real big bummer because I love my life and I love living and I don't know what's going to happen when I become dirt. I'll probably just become dirt. But I don't know if afraid, fearful is a better word. Um, but okay, so if it's not you, like you want everyone in your life right now to be alive. Like when someone, if something happened to anybody you love, it's a tragedy. It would feel so big hard. Big time. Big time. So why can't you just be like, well, now they're in the next cycle? Well, because I've created a bond with that person and I have memories and it me- they mean emotions to me. And those emotions live on after the person. But what I'm really good at and it's not that I don't value the people that have passed because my I still have emotional ties to all the people that I've lost. But like with rescue dogs, for instance, I am very good at, I don't need a year or six weeks or six months in between dogs when one passes. I'm like the next day. And people think that's crazy. But in my mind, like I lost two dogs during COVID, two of my seniors died and it was awful, especially like Lola, who was my anchor to life. I had her for 16 years. She was my absolute anchor to everything in my life. I got her when I was 24, but I got her from a shelter where she was in a cage with no love or affection, just food and water, wondering where her home was going to be. And the moment she died, I know that what she would want is for me to go find another Lola that's sitting in a shelter somewhere, wondering who their family's going to be, you know? So to me, it was, it's like obligation because I know you can crack open love from any human being or animal if you try hard enough. You believe I mean, that? I do. Aside from like, aside from serious mental instability problems, like right. people who want to kill or things like that. But yes, I, I do believe that with the right amount of patience and love, and especially with animals, like yeah. there's a very clear roadmap with any dog trainer of how to But get why do you put it. yourself through the pain? Because I'm sure even though you have that um, belief or you get a dog when they're 14 and they're going to die at 15, why would you put yourself through that? Because it's harder for me to know that there are 14-year-old dogs who just need comfort sitting in a shelter somewhere. It's harder for me to know that, that, that they're just there, isolated, not getting love in their last year or days or years or however long they have, and that they're probably just going to be discarded because nobody wants an old dog. It's harder for me to know that that is out there than it is for me to just deal with the pain when they pass. Like when they pass, it's almost like I feel like, good job, Kristen. You did it. You did a good thing. You gave this animal so much love. They gave you billions more love than you could ever give them because that's just how dogs are. But yeah, it doesn't, I don't get lost in the self-indulgence of, of my own, the part I played and my loss in it. Is that is that why it's important to live a purposeful life? 
I think so. It's just happier when, to, to me, for me, it's happier when I'm like, focusing on the good I'm doing as opposed to, I also like suffer from anxiety and depression. So it's not healthy for me to sit in a dark room thinking about how much I miss Lola all day. Uh-huh. You know, it's not helpful for anybody, not for me, if not for my family, not for my heart, not for Lola, you know? So do you think that you are that, com- because you've suffered from anxiety and depression, has that made you more compassionate towards other people because you know what it feels like to not feel good? Yeah, maybe because I'm like this weird, I I can feel both things really strongly. Like I can feel like hope and optimism really strongly. And then I can feel anxiety and depression really strongly. And I, by the way, I guess that's what just being a human is, you know, knowing both knowing the sort of dark and the light i have a lot of compassion for people who experience the dark or maybe can't get themselves out of it like people who are in a really bad mood i'm very gentle with and i don't um i tend to operate as we all do how i would want someone to operate around me you know like i wake up and i'm grumpy and my kids are and my husband are like in my face they're talking so loud <laughs> they're asking me a million questions and i'm going how do you not have a read on the fact that I woke up a little grumpy today and just get out of my face? I don't know how you can't see that. But like for me, when I see someone in a grumpy mood, I choose to be nonverbal with them because that's what I like, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like I'll, I'll say, are you okay? And if they just give a one word answer, then I just sort of sit there with them, you know? Are, are you in fear of going back to that uh, anxiety and because I have anxiety and depression too. And it's always a fear that you're going to, even though in reality, like the critical thinking side of me, I know how to manage it and don't, it's not really a big problem in my life anymore, but there's still always that fear that you could go back to that place. And I don't see anything valuable about being in that place. It's not somewhere I want to be. Yeah. There's nothing valuable about it. Well, no, I mean, I'm on a medication. I've been on a medication since I was 18 and yeah, that obviously helps a lot. And my mom did a great job as a nurse uh, eliminating all the shame stigma when that happened because she was like, would you tell a diabetic not to take their insulin? And I was like, no. She's like, never, right? You wouldn't just tell them, just digest the sugar. Don't take that pill. She goes, if you have a serotonin imbalance in your brain, you need this pill. So take it, get over it. Um, which people is very are, helpful. People are so recalcitrant to actually like do that though, because everyone's like, well, I'm sad sometimes, you know, everyone's an expert on their mental health. But by so, the way, I think they should be though. I think they should be because not everybody needs a pill. You and I might, but there, there right. is such a spectrum of mental health. And I do love diagnosing is- people though, that I'm like, they need a pill. They need a pill. Oh yeah. Well, well I think yeah. I've told everyone in my family that they need a pill. <laughs> But like, you know, that's what's so interesting about anxiety and depression, right? Is that it can come for three months in your life around a hard time and never appear again. And that was just the time you experienced it. And that person does not need to be on an antidepressant right? or an anti-anxiety. There are some people who just have a penchant for it and they just need to work out every day. You know, I need to do both. I need to work out every day. I need to get my heart rate up every day and take my antidepressant. Well, how did you be an actor and have anxiety issues? Because what you do for your job would give most people who don't need anxiety medication anxiety. 
My anxiety isn't about myself and how I relate to others. My anxiety is about the world. Uh huh. So like public speaking, doing a Zoom with 50 people, sitting in a production meeting, doing a monologue on stage, shooting a movie, those things don't make me nervous. You would sing in the, the Kennedy Center for Barack Obama and not have any nerves. Oh, no, 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 no. I'd have nerves and then probably take a propanol. <laughs> <Like, laughs> I mean, I'm talking like I'm some sort of medicine addict, which I'm not, but there's also another well, really helpful thing for, but there is a really helpful thing for performers that does nothing to your brain that simply slows the ability for your heart to race, which is called propanol or it's, it's called a beta blocker. And it's from what I understand. And again, I'm not prescribing this to anybody. But I have a prescription that I probably take twice a year. And it's mainly when I need to sing, specifically because I need the breath control. So I can't Mm -hmm. have my body like doing crazy nerve stuff when I'm on stage during a live performance. And I don't do it enough to knock the nerves out. But a beta blocker is what the, like the Philharmonic, they take beta blockers so that their hands don't shake and their body doesn't shake out of nerves when they're playing some big symphony. Right. So it's a it's a sort of dependable way when you absolutely have to be calm for something. But the trick with a beta blocker, you have to understand any medicine you take, you have to understand it inside and out. You can't be uh, wishy-washy with just taking pills ever. So the thing about a beta blocker is that I what I understand is that you can't just take it on a daily basis. You have to take it when your heart weight will be raised because otherwise you're at risk of like fainting. Right. Uh huh. So like, you know, it's only at a time when there would be massive nerves, sweat would be pouring out of my armpits, I'd feel like I couldn't breathe, Barack Obama's in the audience, I have to sing a crazy number, and that would be it. It's like, don't take Viagra and do poppers. You know, like, they say, just say they don't work well together. What's you a just popper? have popper? Oh, poppers. Yeah, this is like, tell me you're gay without telling me you're gay. Oh my God. Wait, I feel like I... Do, I feel like it's been explained to me before, but can you explain? They were. It it's a real gay drug, and they originally were to like clean like VHS tape recorders, and then someone found that it relaxes the sphincter and also oh. makes you like super energized and horny. So like people take poppers like really like a lot. Like the gay community is like poppers, poppers. All the memes are about poppers. And then, you know, but they do say like, don't take Viagra with it because I think it lowers the heart rate so much that the popper Uh, ups it, you know? So there's that kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm also like that. (laughs) It's listen, it, medicines are interesting. Drugs are interesting. I read, um, I'm not, those are the only two I take is my propanol when I need it and the, or the, um, my antidepressant, but drugs are very interesting. I read Michael Pollan's most recent book, How to Change Your Mind. And I became so interested in the effect of LSD and psilocybin on the human brain. Oh my God. I want to hear all about this. It, it was very, very interesting. So Michael Pollan wrote this delicious book. That's like a 28 hour read, but it's so worth it about the sort of underground academic intellectual community that has continued to study the effects of LSD and psilocybin and a few other really, really small mind-altering drugs um, on the uh, effect of healthy normals, right? People who weren't doing it for to sort of cure something or to cure some sort of minor ailment, like a little bit of depression or something. Um, and it was so interesting because, you know, Timothy, Timothy Leary, right? That's his name? Yeah. 
the, the I'll take a word for it. Okay, yeah. In the sixties, how he tried to sort of normalize LSD and it was right. And somehow it was like they put an end to it, like immediately. Oh yeah, because he ruined it. They they made it. It's it was never the people who were studying it weren't really meaning for it to be recreational and get out all over everybody's you know flower child yard. They were trying to study the 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 medicinal effects of it, and he just sort of got so much backlash from the 50s um anti-drug yes the like 1950s anti-drug community that they just kind of shut everything down there was this there was this program at harvard that was um studying the effects of LSD on healthy normals and blah 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 it all got shut down but some people continue to do it underground and there's just a lot of really interesting data that they've collected about they're not sure how it works or why it works, but if done in a set, a controlled set and setting, which means it's not really recreational, you're sort of doing it with someone who can guide you through it, more like a doctor who can tell you to you know face your fears and if something's scaring you during the trip, look back at it and face it. The people who come out of that are like, that felt like 10 years of therapy for me. I don't know. It's just really, really interesting. It was on 60 Minutes, and they had this young guy who was like the biggest alcoholic. Like he would drink pints and pints of pure vodka every night. And he said, I felt like the uh, shame of my family. Like I couldn't stop. And he went into this hospital, and they gave him like copious amounts of um, mushrooms, whatever the active ingredient is, but a lot Psilocybin. of Psilocybin. Yeah. Never wanted to drink again afterwards mm-hmm. he was like it changed it saved my life there's so much interesting stuff out there but here's again nuance and context nuance and context no one who's listening to this should be like oh my god i'm an alcoholic all i need to do is take mushrooms that's yeah. not what it is Been you there. have to have a ton of information you have to you you have to know exactly how it works for you you have to be under a doctor's care like there's all these different Things, but I just got very interested in the effects of these sort of trippy drugs on the human mind and mainly more understanding what it's affecting. What neural pathways is it opening up that allows people to overcome an addiction or overcome their serotonin imbalance? Like what what is that? I've just the human brain is so interesting to me. It is. What but do you think that's a slippery slope for someone who is an addict? To say, to hear that you should be able to do mushrooms. No, not to not hear it, but to start to do, to be like, oh, I'm just going to do LSD and like, you know, oh my God, yeah, mushrooms. of course. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. That's a terrible, a terrible, terrible idea. Especially because the two people that are talking about it right now are not doctors. <laughs> well, right. Well, I haven't told you this, but I'm actually a doctor. Yeah. Oh my God. So I wanted to ask you, speaking since we opened up that kind of thing, is that you told me that you had a really positive um, experience with Al-Anon. Oh, incredibly. Yeah. Can you explain I, why you went there and and what it did for you? Yeah, I realized I was an enabler because I am codependent and I want everybody to be happy and uh like me all the time. And that can be incredibly detrimental not just to myself but also to those around me, especially when I'm in a relationship with an addict and I am. He is my qualifier. So going to What does Al-Anon, that mean a qualifier? Qualifier means the person in your life that is the addict. Because you need that to go to Al-Anon? 
You don't necessarily need, well, yeah, you would have to have a qualifier. It doesn't necessarily have to be a person. I don't think that's an addict per se. It could be a narcissist. It could be a parent. Like I think Al-Anon has so much healing possibilities for anyone that's struggling with the relationships in their life. Okay. Um, I, I think it, I don't think Al-Anon as they, you know, nobody, they don't advertise, but they certainly could have a much broader audience. Um, it, it just reminds you where you stop and someone else begins. It Tell reminds me about that. you. Well, that you can't fix everything for other people that, you know, like the basic, basic rule they would tell you is like, if you say the next time you do drugs, you're out of the house, you got to fulfill that. You can't say, okay, fine. Well, just try to get sober again and stay here. Like you have to do something that's actually painful to you and that you already know is painful to the addict, you have to say, you're going to have to find somewhere else to live while you're getting sober. It's really, really hard to do, but they give you the sort of tools. Why does it have to be painful to you? You didn't do anything. No, but because as usually people who go to Al-Anon or some of them, a lot of them tend to be enablers, which means they don't want the people around them to suffer, right? Usually an addict will, will link up with an enabler. And does that mean an enabler will often link up with an addict? Yeah, I think that's what I've seen and what I've been told. And and certainly someone listening to this could be like, no way. But well, that's for, for you, I'd say. For me, and, yes, yeah. that's what I've experienced. Because I'm an enabler. My husband's an addict, for sure. Um, okay. And you you just have to realize that when you want to help them, it's not your job to help them. It is their job to help them. And they will never get sober for you. They will only get sober for themselves. Like say, you know, saying, but me and the kids, that'll never get them sober. It'll really? only, and it just, yeah, never. No people, addicts only get sober for themselves. And it's an absolute, it's hogwash and poppycock. If someone tells you they did it for another reason, I think. But can someone who loves them point it out and say, you're hurting this, you're, I'm seeing this or you're hurting us. Sure. But and it's not going to, it's not, they're not going to care. It's not actually going to land. They know so that. How does it land? Well, they know that. And it's all it's going to do is add more shame to their plate. And shame is what keeps them an addict. So removing the shame, allowing them time with themselves, hopefully in a treatment facility is what gets them sober and having access to the tools at AA. But Al-Anon reminds you that like, you know, we say watch their feet because in the early stages of uh, someone being sober, they can tend to be very provocative. My su- husband certainly was in his first five years. And it can be like, did you need to tell that dick joke when my grandma was at the table? Or do you think you could have shut it at that point? You know, <laughs> like, what is that about? Well, yeah, because they lost drugs, they lost alcohol. And, you know, usually the stages when you're getting sober, it's like you give up drugs and you give up alcohol, then you give up women or whoever your sexual preference is. And then you give up smoking and then you feel like you have nothing and you feel like you're just this empty thing and you got to live with whatever anxiety is in your body. So you turn to being a little provocative. This is what I heard from my therapist. He's like, you know, he'll be provocative for the next couple of years, but at five years, they kind of graduate a little bit and hit a marker where they don't feel the need to be so provocative. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that so clearly, but you have to watch their feet in Al-Anon, they say. So like, no matter what their mouth is running on about, what are their, what are their actions? Are they tucking your kids in at night? Like, are they showing up to their AA meetings? Al-Anon just gives you 
a tools from the book and a community to converse with of other people who were like, I can't bear that I can't help him. I can't bear that I can't say to him or her, I'm just going to dump this down the drain because that's what's good for you, baby. And then the person will just go buy more alcohol right? because it's not up to you. It's up to them. And that's just, Alan makes that really clear and gives you a lot of good um, tools. So you would have to practice tough love, which for you would seem like what? Brutal. Because I don't want to give tough love to anybody. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Al-Anon sort of teaches you tough love, not just with your qualifier, but with yourself. Has it helped you in other relationships in your life? Yeah, for sure. Knowing where I end and someone else begins is really helpful because I've always had so much trouble distinguishing that. And my instinct is to try to fix the other person, whatever the problem is, if they're hungry, if they're sad, if they, whatever it is, and then not even realizing I'm doing it until I'm completely overextended. Are you attracted to type A personalities or big personalities or provocative personalities? Yeah. Not so much type A, but definitely big and provocative. The people I know who I'm thinking of who fit that bill tend to have friends who are like really out there and it's probably me I'm describing, but really out there and, and take control and kind of, you know, you're along for the ride, but the person is driving the car. Yeah. You know, what's so weird is that I felt like I'm kind of an alpha, but I'm like a weird, I can also be beta. Um, but my previous relationships, I was so alpha and I thought that was me. And I was not only driving the car, my ex-boyfriends were in the trunk. They weren't even in the back seat. You know what I mean? I'd have in the trunk. Yeah. But when I met Dax, there was something about him being in control in this very thoughtful, critical thinking, whatever kind of way that I was diffused of all this anxiety about being in control. And I realized, oh, I just really needed to trust the person that was in control. I don't have to do it. I can focus on my nurturing or all my other little proclivities. And I can let him drive the car, literally and figuratively, because he does not let me drive. <laughs> because he, God, I hate driving, and we always fight about who has to drive. Oh, my God. I, I don't mind it. I also love – I have a little Chevy Bolt, and I love it so much. It's like a teeny, tiny little car, and I love it, and it's electric. But my husband's, like, main source of self-esteem is driving. He loves to drive fast. You know, he actually does – he races for Lamborghini. He races for Ducati. He's, like, a part-time professional race car driver, and he's doing the show Top Gear right now. You know, they, you know that show Top Gear, the BBC show? Not really. It was, like – If you've never heard of it, it's kind of fascinating because it was on for, I don't know, like 20 years in England, but it was literally the biggest show in the world. Like, you know how you hear that like Baywatch was the biggest show in the world Uh because like all of Eastern Europe watched it? It was kind (laughs) of like that, but like everybody watched Top Gear and it was amazing. And they, they, the show ended, the guys got older and they're reinventing it here in America with Dax and this um, British journalist and race car, a car driver named Jethro and Rob Corddry. And it's really funny. It's the three of them that basically like every episode, they're either like taking an old car and sprucing it up and having a race like on a track or through um, 
like a weird snow embankment or I don't know. It's really, really cute. And it's really, really fun. And he, um, I've never seen him so happy with a job in his life. What's well, his they passion? It is his passion. And he is elated every time he comes home from work. He is like truly living his dreams by doing Top Gear. And it makes me so happy. Did you guys make a conscious effort? Because I have a lot of clients who just will not discuss their partner. And you guys have been very open and honest about your relationship. And it seems like a lot of things. Did you make a decision that you guys were going to be open, um, address each other publicly? Yeah. In the beginning, we were really hesitant about it because nobody wants to be under the microscope. And like Mm -hmm. that really has like those stupid tabloids cause people to break up even when they shouldn't, you know, Mm -hmm. and I get it. People like to consume those stories. They're all narratives. They're just, you know, we, we were really hesitant about it in the beginning. And then I guess as we got deeper into our relationship, we kind of realized or took on this responsibility of like, you know, Dak studied primatology and he was like, we're monkeys. We look to our alphas. And sometimes celebrities are viewed as the alphas. That's those are the people we track. They we want to see pictures of them. You know, you have monkey communities where, like, literally the 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 monkeys will um they'll they'll disregard their favorite juice box just to look at a picture of their alpha. You know what I mean? I mean, it's yeah. truly like real studies. They'll go like, no, the, do you want the juice box? Do you want to look at a picture of the alpha in your group, and they'll stare at the picture. And by the way, the only thing they'll choose over the picture of the alpha is a picture of the monkey's female genitalia. FYI. Real oh, I can't relate to that. What about the male genitalia? Sure. Well, then, gr- yeah, then great. Or the genitalia of the monkey they're attracted to, right? Okay. The, the monkey they want to procreate I'm, with. Or we cl- I'm to. glad we cleared that up. We can clear, yeah, 100%. <laughs> and you were right to do it. You were right. I was being, I was boxing it in and I shouldn't have. <laughs> but we are monkeys, right? And I just, Dax lives as an example to help other people. And I try to too. And we just sort of, I guess, had a mild conversation about like, you know what? We love therapy. We should be saying that. We should remove this stigma. We should talk about how hard marriage is and how your perfect match isn't maybe necessarily out there. It takes a lot of work to be with someone, to love them through their faults and your own, and why it's worth it. And so we were like, let's just be really honest about what we dislike about each other. And maybe that will come across charming because we're still in love. And I don't know. We just, it's also disarming because. You're so honest and open about anything that no one can have that power over you because you're open and honest about it. Yeah, that's a little bit true. We just didn't ever want to, especially because like with this whole like relationship goals hashtag thing that people put on other people, which is fine. Like, I think it's so cute, but I also am like, I don't want that to make someone start to wait for their perfect match. Like maybe Dax is my perfect match, but I've also put a whole hell of a lot of effort into getting along with him. And he has to me. And that's what's required. That's the critical thinking behind marriage and getting along with someone. Yeah. You know? You're not going to meet someone and they're just going to do everything right because you found them. That's well, not humanity. Then you'd bully them. Like, I need that pushback or I would just, you know, bully John Pierre. I look at him sometimes and I go, and we both say it to each other, I deserve you. You know, like I yeah, really deserve that, you. <laughs> and here's the funny thing is even if it's in your, even if you think that's a good idea, like, oh, I'd love to just have someone who acquiesces to my every need. I promise you, you'll get bored. Oh, no. Yeah, that would never work. 
Kristen, can I ask you one final question? And then I'd yes. like to play a really short little fun game. Yes. Um, this is a question that I ask everyone um, who is on the podcast. If you were able to step into a ma- magic time machine and meet your younger self, where and when would you do it? And what would you say? Oh, I would find myself in elementary school. I would definitely say be as nice to as many people as you possibly can because your life is going to be very easy. And I would, I would, I, so I would start to tell myself to spend my privilege really early. And I would also say keep a journal because my memory is for the birds. I don't remember trips that I've been on until someone reminds me. I mean, I really have no recollection of it. I don't know why. I wake up like, a clean slate every morning. Maybe that's why I'm happy. I don't know. (laughs) Because I'm like, nothing's wrong, right? The world is great. No problems. Not, you know, I don't remember yesterday. I would ask myself to keep a journal so that I could have a clearer picture of the arc of my life. Oh, I love that. And what I've learned from. Um, Do you have time for a quick game? Because Anna says that you have a call in two minutes. Do it. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. All right. Soda or pop? Pop. Get real. (laughs) Musical or play? Musical. RV or tent? RV. Favorite vegan restaurant in LA? Sage in Silver Lake. Erewhon or Farmer's Market? Farmer's Market. Blank is the East Village of LA. Los Feliz. Pita Bread or Pita Organization? Ooh. That's tough. Okay. <laughs> That's really tough. Dak Shepard or Sam Shepard? Oh, Dak Shepard all the way. Blizzard. Any in- Shepard. <laughs> yeah. Shepard. Or a Shepard. Um, Blizzard in Michigan or Heat Wave in LA? Oof. Oh, man. My nostalgia is telling me to go Blizzard in Michigan. Mm hmm. Yeah, the heat is like the worst for me. And um, Golden Hour or Golden Retriever? Golden Retriever. Yay! A rescued Golden Retriever. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much. I just want to say quickly that you are one of those people who I met. And I hate when people interview someone and they're really sycophantic. But honestly, I met you and I thought you have a lot of things that I wanted to learn from you. And I just was like, I see how you are and I want to be more like that. And I thought you were just wise and a great person. And then also something weird happened is when you left from the first time the the weekend we were doing press, I actually felt sad. And I was like, <gasps> oh, I have this like sad feeling when I'm not with you anymore. And I never feel that way ever. So I, I'd like to leave on an awkward feeling, note. <laughs> that feeling was, well, I'll leave it on an even more one, uh, even more awkward. That feeling was mutual because oh. there are a lot of people I also feel like are connected enough, but also self-possessed enough. And you are one of those people where like, I always say this about Kirby Howell Baptiste, who's one of my best friends, where she's like one of the kindest people I've ever met, but she protects herself at all costs. And I really do learn from those people and I think there's just a balance to be struck with when friends teach you about yourself and your inner workings. And you're one of the people that's done that for me. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. Well, I hope that we get to see each other soon. 
I know I do too. And thanks for such a fun, random talk. I feel like we've, I was so vulnerable. We talked about like drugs and I feel like this was, (laughs) this show was actually called In My Chair. And I was thinking of you, like the talks that we've had in my makeup chair. And I have to Uh say, this was one of them. Oh my God. I love it. Okay. Talk to you soon. And it's going to kill me. Okay. Bye. (laughs) Bye. 